Hello, everyone. We're back. It's Hit Factory. I'm Aaron. I'm Carly. And joining us for the final installment of Scott Tember, returning guest, friend of the show, Zach Vasquez is here today. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can't wait to talk about Crimson Tide. Yes, sir. Tony Scott's 1995 submarine thriller, Crimson Tide, is the one we're talking about today. I think collectively here, all three of us uh, claim this particular one as as our favorite all-time Tony Scott. And Zach, I'm, I'm curious why this one is uh, is so important to you. I just think that this is one of the most purely entertaining movies ever made. Um, I can watch it at the drop of a hat. I honestly, personally, there's maybe one movie that I find personally more entertaining than this, uh, which is Digstown. That's it's like the only other, that's the only movie that I personally feel approaches this one in terms of just sheer top to bottom entertainment. A hundred percent agree. Every time I watch this movie, doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. I am like in my bones, like giddy, Mm -hmm. just like watching every single second of it. And I will always turn to whomever I am watching it with, pause it and say, this is the best movie ever made. Mm -hmm. Like in earnest, (laughs) you can't watch this film and not just like marvel at how masterful it is. Yeah. I also think it's on just a craft level. Scott's best. Like, he finds the most interesting angles to shoot the submarine in. Uh, his use of color, which I, I like throughout his movies, but I think he can sometimes, you know, go over the top with, especially in his later work. Uh, same with the editing and the music. But here, they all feel so specific to the the setting that it just it comes together in a way that, that I, I think, uh, you know, is, is him at the top of his game for this. It never yeah. feels over the top in this movie. It, it feels like exactly what the situation would it feels like perfect for the situation you know it's so frantic but like the situation is so frantic it's so you know jarring but like the situation is so tense that it it, it works as opposed to something like i don't know domino where you know i respect what he's doing in that because i i you know i i like how mad that movie is but it is very over the top it doesn't always work yeah the as we've been watching a lot of tony scott's films some that i've seen some that i haven't it was clear to me how much of an apotheosis this film is for all of the things that he is so good at. And as you said, really just like ripe territory for him to flex all of these muscles. Like, you know, the the image collaging he does, the oral collaging he does, the scanted angles, the color, like all of his sort of pop art uh, impetuses are like in on full display in this film and it feels really germane and implicit to the surroundings of the movie to the trappings of a submarine uh, a naval submarine Mm -hmm. yeah it's sort of the platonic ideal of a tony scott film you know he, he loves these these intricacies and these particular visual and aesthetic flourishes so much that it it only stands to reason that eventually he would just produce a set that gave him full capacity to do all of those things uh, in in a little self-contained bubble in its own little world. And uh, the set in this is is really something to behold, you know, having it on that gimbal like that. And you can actually feel the gravity of it. You can you can see when they're walking up 
uphill almost as mm-hmm. as the submarine is descending you can you can see when when they are kind of shifting side to side as as the boat itself is rocking and and yeah he just he finds really interesting ways to do that and and there's so much movement here too which is something that you don't often get in these kinds of movies especially in a submarine movie where a lot of it is about stillness about stealth about covertness Mm -hmm. he finds a way to continue to make everything feel very kinetic and give a good like spatial proximity to everything like in my mind the way that he shoots the weapons deck as opposed to the comms deck and then the Mm -hmm. bridge you know that one is on top of the other Mm -hmm. and the way that they communicate the way that he sort of positions and frames those shots you sort of see the hierarchy uh, within the physical space and also in the way that he kind of blocks the actors and the way that he shoots those. It's it's really something to behold. He's technically just like operating, firing on all cylinders here. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, because you don't generally think of Tony Scott movies for being very uh, like limited to a single set, right? Like Top Gun is massive. It's, you know, they're, they're, they're inside the cockpit a lot, but they're also flying through like the air and they're on these big ship carriers and, uh, a lot of his other movies, like dude, he's done a couple movies in stadiums, you know, like The Fan and parts of Last Boy Scout. Even something I haven't seen uh, one of one of like two Tony Scott movies that I haven't seen. I've never seen Revenge, and I've never seen uh, his remake of Taking a Pill Home One Two Three. So maybe that one because it's set in a subway car is similar, I, but I can't tell you because I haven't seen it. Uh, but even something like Unstoppable, you're never inside the train. Like you're outside, you're watching like this huge. He has these huge spaces and these big crowd scenes and. In this one, it's it's all contained in the single ship, and yet he makes it feel massive. Uh, he finds the most interesting ways to shoot it, uh, and yeah, I, I'm just in awe of, of how he how he did that in this one. Last time we had you on the show, Zach, we talked about The Edge, a film written by David Mamet and starring Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins, really about two men, mm-hmm. a clash of wills, and survival in the wilderness. And I I can't say that we're digressing too far from that basic template with this one here you know in in these two powerhouse actors of denzel washington and gene hackman who have never been better than in this movie Mm -hmm. i think and watching the two of them perform together is something to behold yeah um there's maybe one or two hackman performances i might put above this just in terms of performance this would be my favorite denzel i think that this is denzel at his at his best and it's it's interesting too because you know he's done some where he's maybe had shown a little bit more range of emotion but this one it's he's just such a a, a like hero in it like and, and that's like to me denzel at his best is when he i mean okay yeah now nah, i should say malcolm x is his best like <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah all right so other, other than malcolm x yeah i think this is denzel at his absolute best and yeah it's definitely hackman it's definitely top three hackman performances i think um and just getting the two of them to square off against each other is so good uh, you know, I love Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise has, you know, done a movie with Hackman and they're, they're great. Like other, but like really Denzel is one of the few from that generation that I think is on his level in terms of like a commanding presence. Uh, he's one of the few actors at this time of that age that you buy as like being able to stand toe to toe with Hackman, yes. you know? Um, and yeah, I think it's just perfect. Perfect casting. And not just them. The rest of the cast is incredible, too. And completely stacked. Mm-hmm. Like There are so many people in this movie who 
we know as like really wonderful character actors and also protagonists in their own right, like Viggo Mortensen and James Gandolfini. I think what you're getting at about Denzel's performance and why I also would like have the the impulse to propel it up at the top of his performances, even right up there with Malcolm X, is that despite the fact that he, as you say, you know, isn't necessarily like pushing into a lot of these extreme uh, ranges in his spectrum of of his sort of like uh, the emotional presentation of his character. What he and I think Hackman are, are both doing is delivering a lot of really complex, nuanced dynamics within themselves between each other their relationship to systems like all of these different things in you know dialogue that is just beautifully written and Mm -hmm. so efficient and also extremely full of uh, just full of depth yeah and i mean just like the the scene where they square off and have their big confrontation where it leads to the mutiny is just you you are so on the edge of your seat for that entire one to where they start talking giving commands over each other and yes. it really has this like feel of like almost poetry to it what i'm saying captain is that we have backup now it's our duty not to launch until we can confirm you're presuming that we have other submarines out there ready to launch this captain, I must assume that our submarines could have been taken out by other Akulas. We can play these games all night, Mr. Hunter, but I don't have the luxury of your presumptions. Sir. Mr. Hunter, we have rules that are not open to interpretation, personal intuition, gut feelings, hairs on the back of your neck, little devils or angels sitting on your shoulders. Captain, yes. We're all very well aware of what our orders are and what those orders mean. They come down from our commander-in-chief. They contain no ambiguity. Captain, Mr. Sir. Hunter, I've made a decision. I'm captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up! Captain, I cannot concur. Repeat my command. Sir, we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. You repeat this order or I'll find somebody who will. No, no, you won't, sir. You're relieved to your position. Cobb, remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get Lieutenant Zimmerman here right now. No, sir. I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man and get him out of here. Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? Sir, this is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message first. I will be chief of the boat. By the rules of precedence, captain commanding officer. It's just one of the most, one of the best two-hander scenes, I think, uh, in any movie, but especially from that time. It feels a lot more like theater than mm-hmm. I'm used to seeing in cinema, you know, especially Tony Scott's cinema, where for a minute there, you kind of you lose the the nuance, you lose the specificity of what each character is saying. Mm-hmm. But they both find ways to give and to take at the perfect moments so that you can hear everything you need to. And the sort of resounding words that come out of that like cacophony of, of noise is 
mutiny, right? Mm -hmm. Arrest. And and these things sort of come out of the fray. It feels like two really great actors giving their all, but also being incredibly generous with the other one and making sure that the other person is elevated with them. And, And that midpoint sequence where the mutiny finally occurs and Hackman is finally taken below deck mm-hmm. is is absolutely electric. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah, and I think it speaks to how good the writing and directing this movie is in that the film itself never feels stagey. It's so dynamically shot, and it's it feels the scope is so big. But it could work as a stage play because of the writing, because the writing is that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I know the screenplay was written by uh, Michael Schiffer and Richard Richard B. Hendricks came up with the story. Michael Schiffer uh, wrote the screenplay. I know Quinta Tarantino famously uh, did some script doctoring on it, right. uh, although I'm not sure how much of his stuff is in there. I don't think it's ever really been specified. I know he said he didn't write the Silver Surfer line scene uh, i can't believe assume, that i, I know i don't believe, believe that, that. He, there's been a couple interviews where he's like everyone assumed that i wrote that he's like i didn't write that scene i do i do assume he wrote the scene where gandolfini's talking about the uh submarine movies with yes robert mitchum i'm just gonna assume that that's tarantino that's got to be him the star trek reference has the star to be trek tarantino. reference probably, yeah absolutely and um, one that i want to talk about a little bit more later but i i give full credit to tarantino for the famous Lipizzaner stallion mm-hmm. that feels like one that he wrote as well yeah that actually that feels very similar to the much much less transgressive than the the true romance scene with dennis hopper and christopher walken but it has a similar yes. yeah and i'd love to come back to that because i think that scene's very key yeah <laughs> i definitely want to talk about that because i i do think that the sort of acknowledgement of of a racialized landscape is important in this film and it still manages to do it it doesn't do it as say overtly as Tarantino uh, may have wanted but I actually think that 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 is used to benefit Mm -hmm. in this film Zach would you be willing to give us just a a brief synopsis of Crimson Tide before we continue Uh, okay so Crimson Tide takes place aboard the USS Alabama, which is a nuclear-armed submarine that has been dispatched to the Caspian Sea by the United States in response to Russian nationalists uh, taking over a staging a coup and taking over a nuclear uh, arsenal in Chechnya. Uh, and after the leader of the Russian nationalists threatens to launch uh, nukes once they have the codes against the United States and Japan. Uh, the United States sends uh, the Alabama to the Caspian Sea in order to possibly launch a preemptive strike. Uh, the Alabama is commanded by Captain Frank Ramsey, played by Gene Hackman, who is a very experienced, uh, very well-respected uh, captain. He's, he's one of the few who's actually seen action in war, uh, having gone to Grenada and Desert Storm. Um, his XO, which is the executive officer, is sick uh, with, I think, appendicitis. So he has to replace him, and he chooses Lieutenant Commander Hunter, who is played by Denzel Washington, who's like a Harvard-educated, uh, you know, fast-rising, kind of more politically-minded uh, officer. And at first, it seems like they're going to get along very well because Hunter is very professional. Uh, but it becomes very clear very soon that their commanding styles are very different. Uh, Ramsey is 
a very he he's like he's like a football coach, you know, like his men love him and respect him, but they also fear him. He's very authoritarian. Uh, during like a dinner scene where they're discussing their all all of the all of the uh, commanders and captains are discussing like politics and their philosophies and war. It, you know, he's he's obviously very conservative um, in his approach to it. You know, we do what we're told. We want to kick ass, uh, all this stuff. Whereas Hunter is much more of an egghead um, and is actually something of a pacifist. Like he says in that scene that in the nuclear age, the true enemy is war itself. Um, and so not just worldview wise, but like I said, commanding styles are very different. Hunter's much more on a personal level, like personally involved with the soldiers. Whereas Ramsey is, no, you do what I tell you, or I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, and this all comes to a head after they receive a command to launch the preemptive strike, uh, which involved using one of the nuclear missiles on board. So this will be the first nuclear attack that the United States has launched since the end of World War II. Um, and Hunter is willing to go along with it until they receive a second order that gets cut off mid-communication uh, because they're also being uh, engaged with a Russian hunter-killer submarine in the same area. And as a result of that, the second command doesn't come through. He realizes it could be a command either confirming or uh, the first order or countermanding it. So he refuses to give his assent for the launch until they get that second order, which leads to a confrontation between him and Ramsey in front of all of the, the men in that room. And it ends with Ramsey accusing Hunter of staging a mutiny and Hunter successfully taking over command because Ramsey has given an illegal order to remove him from command. And then the next hour all plays out in real time as both sides and factions that are loyal to them uh, try to overthrow one another and take command of the ship, all while they're attempting to get the order that was cut off because within the hour, uh, the 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 Russian nationalists will have have the capabilities to launch those missiles. Uh, so they need to get it beforehand to see if they if they if they are going to attack, or if not. And meanwhile, there's this uh, very dangerous power struggle aboard the ship. I'm beautifully done. Thank you. I'm vibrating just hearing you. I I'm like, I want to watch it again. We watched it two <laughs> nights ago. Um, it that's uh, an excellent synopsis of the film. Uh, I want to start. I think with the very beginning here, you know, the, the first introductions between uh, Denzel and Hackman as, as Hunter and Ramsey, respectively. As you said, you know, the, the reason why Hunter comes aboard the Alabama is because uh, of an illness that has befallen the XO, or so Ramsey claims. But the other officers, officers aboard the ship, played by James Gandolfini, Viggo Mortensen, um, and then also Matt Craven, as well as, as Zimmer, maybe a, a, a Shout out to the composer of the film. Well, there's a Zimmer. Uh, there's a Link Letter. Um, yeah, <laughs> where, yeah. I think there's a couple different uh, uh, references to people in the business at the time. Yeah, yeah. But they call into question uh, this this particular story that Hackman has told, um, and it's just a, a brief sort of line of dialogue. But they do mention how often Ramsey. Uh, has chewed up and spat out his former XOs. Mm -hmm. And I think Gandolfini at this point kind of asked the question, like, what, what was it this time that he said? Appendicitis or something? 
And uh, I, I'm curious, Zach, if you if you buy Ramsey's story. Yeah, I think that that's. I think that you definitely are ex- are are kind of expected to to read into that. Um, he even when he first says that he he turns to his uh, his right hand man, uh, the chief of the boat, played by uh, George Dezunda, who, yeah. in my opinion, is actually after Hackman and and Washington is actually the MVP of the movie. Uh, I agreed. Think, I think Completely. he gives Cobb. Yeah, Cobb. Uh, I think he gives the the third best performance in the movie, especially in that scene, because he does. He he's really the one responsible for uh, Hunter's successful taking over because he backs him, which you're not expecting because he's like the right hand man and seemingly best friend of Hackman, but he's so by the book uh, that that he has to take Denzel's side, and it's like really crushing to Hackman too, uh, and himself. He even says like, "I love that man. Like, fuck you," but. I go by the book, uh, and then by the end of it, you can tell him and Denzel have really bonded over mm-hmm. the experience. I, he's just so good in the movie, anyway. But like when they first introduce him, he says, "Yeah, appendicitis." Like he kind of gives a wink, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. So I think you you get that sense. Like all of the other men love Hackman, but you do get the sense that the person that he has to work with the closest is the one he's going to push away. They say like, "Yeah, that's why his wife left him." Um, so you definitely get that sense. That he's he's probably gone through a number of exos that he's just bullied out of 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 the command. There's a scene uh, also toward the beginning of the film that is just amazing for several reasons. Um, they are sitting at uh, I'm going to misuse the term. Is it periscope depth when they're up? above the water and they can actually mm-hmm. like come up and use the periscope. I think that's slightly below that's the slightly water. Below. Like at like mm-hmm. 80 feet or so, 80 meters. They're sitting at the top of, of the water um, before they take the sub- submarine under and they're watching the sunset and Denzel's character and Hackman's character are standing next to each other, uh, smoking cigars at Hackman's behest. And the conversation starts off with some silence and Hackman's character applauds Denzel's character and says, you know, most people would have talked away this moment. It's my favorite part. Right here, right now. Bravo, Hunter. Sir? You knew to shut up and enjoy the view. Most eggheads want to talk it away. You stuck this one up a couple of points. Thanks. And then he goes on to say, if you want your own boat someday, the very worst thing you could do is worry about yourself or impressing me. And he basically says, like, I don't want to kiss ass. I don't want someone who's going to come here and, like, try to bend over backwards for me. Um, I want you focused on your your mission. And he gives us the entire backdrop of the tension between the two of them in that exchange. He is saying, I don't want you to follow me unquestionably. I don't want you to kiss my ass. I want you to focus on the mission and I don't want you to worry about impressing me. And he does just that Denzel's character. And in fact, he time and time again shows us 
that he is able and willing to do the things that Hackman's character thinks he's not able and willing to do, like make difficult decisions, like, you know, focus on the mission and not on yourself or impressing him. I, I say this, I think, every time we we watch a Tony, a new Tony Scott film, uh, that, that it's the best Hans Zimmer score. Mm-hmm. Um and I think we're always right. Yeah, I <laughs> think know? this one. I think this one is definitely his best, though. Like, the, it's so just heart pounding mm-hmm. throughout. Um, yeah, it uh, to me recalls a lot of what he would later go on to do in his Oscar-nominated work for Gladiator mm-hmm. with Tony's brother Ridley in 2000. There are some some orchestral moments here that seem to mirror kind of the theme uh, from that film that uh, is. I think equally recognizable, maybe just to me because I've seen that movie so many times. Hmm. But, um, but it, it it certainly seems in in line with with that particular work. War is a continuation of politics by other means. On Clausewitz, I think, uh, sir, that what he was actually trying to say was a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the purpose of war is is to serve a political end, but the true nature of war is to serve itself. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> in other words, the sailor most likely to win the war is the one most willing to part company with the politicians and ignore everything except the destruction of the enemy. That You'd agree with that? I'd agree that uh, that's what Clausewitz was trying to say. But you wouldn't agree with it? No, sir. <laughs> No, I, I just think that in the nuclear world, a true enemy can't be destroyed. In my humble opinion, in the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. You know, Zach, after our episode on The Edge, uh, I sought out and watched several of David Mamet's films. One of my favorites being his 2004 film Spartan with Val Kilmer. Uh, But uh, one of the things that I was struck by watching Crimson Tide this time around is something that I also uh, find so appealing about that film, which is how much of the dialogue uh, is kind of shop talk, is Mm -hmm. kind of jargon. Um, There's like a a very deftly handled sort of arcana and uh, layer to the dialogue here. And you kind of forget about it in this film because there's so many quotable moments there's so many exchanges that are are really sizzling but a lot of the the dialogue in between a lot of the commands and when they're in the midst of of actual combat uh does have this this twinge of of just you know uh lingo of Mm -hmm. of jargon and i i I find it really immersive i find it really interesting yeah uh i do too and honestly that's always my favorite thing about uh military movies or for that matter cop movies or movies that are set in these very you know technically driven uh you know hothouse worlds uh is mm-hmm. the the use of lingo uh i love it and yeah i think this is a great example of it yeah the the dialogue did feel um very much like mammoth in a couple of ways mm-hmm. but particularly like like the dialogue in Spartan, not just because of the jargon, but because of how Spartan the dialogue actually is in this movie. Like there is so much communicated with so few words um, and it's really difficult to do. Um, And I think like 
aside from the fact that it also is this really immersive quality, um, it is intensely propulsive, which I also found the dialogue to be in Spartan. It just sort of kicks you forward. Um, and, and likewise in this film, you know, you mentioned the, the dinner scene. It's the first night after they go under, you know, just after the sunset, um, and they're talking about politics and, you know, there aren't a ton of words being exchanged between what is ostensibly like 10 people, right. Sitting around uh, a table. Um, and yet the, the conversation tells you so much, not just about their worldviews, but also about the backdrop in which their personal antagonism is also playing on sort of a political world stage of antagonism. And it's, it's something that I really like about this film in particular that, um, you know, Tony sets us up with in the beginning. This movie is about the uh, conflict between these two men, but it is set against uh, a very dire, um, much larger global conflict and ideologies that are in conflict with one another about how the world should be organized and and who what real what power really means and all of that is communicated in this small dinner scene with you know a handful of sentences exchanged back and forth and um and it's just brilliant writing and as i said tony is able to do a lot with a little and likewise he's able to do a little with quite a bit yeah um also in, in what you're getting from that dinner scene in terms of the ideology and then the larger ideology of the movie is similar to what you find in Spartan, but coming maybe from a different political uh, play view, which is they're both about soldiers who realize they have to question their orders, that they can't just follow them, that they have to listen to their conscience. Uh, but whereas Spartan is coming from like the mammoth libertarian, more right wing, like don't trust the government. Uh, yeah, place. This is actually coming from. I do. I think that this is very much uh, a very liberal movie, um, and uh, not liberal in like leftist sense. Like more. This. This is. This is pretty much the like Clinton blockbuster. I think. Yes. Um, and at the end, there's you know that 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 on screen text of how in the future the power of launch launching missiles will be t- is, is going to be taken away from submarine commanders and it will rest in the hands of the president. And I'm never really sure whether that's supposed to be like uh, a, a, a warning. Like, I'm not sure. Like, it feels like that's supposed to maybe be a thing of like, dun, dun, dun. But the movie that you've just watched kind of makes it seem like, no, that's actually probably maybe for the best. The fact that it's coming out during the, the middle of the Clinton administration, uh, mm-hmm. which... You know, say what you want about him. I don't think anyone ever really feared that Clinton was going to launch World War Three, like for as for as militaristic <laughs> as he could be. Like, you know, it's a thing of like, yeah, I, I don't think you know there there's a reason that 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 a lot of the 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 Armageddon nuclear stuff kind of kind of stopped. But this is this is one of the cases of a movie that actually in the, in that period uh, deals with it um, from like a nuclear perspective. I don't think there's yes. too many from the Clinton era, like the the end of the world stuff from that era is more like comets or environmental stuff. Um, <laughs> yep. So I think ultimately whatever that last bit of on-screen text, whatever it's supposed to convey, I do think that this movie is ultimately a 
you know, it, it's one of the few military movies that actually is like, no, the battle-tested Hawk isn't right. The egghead, Harvard-educated one, who in every other movie is either the villain or the guy who has to learn to, like, put that aside, put all the smart talk away, uh, put down the books and, like, follow the, like, man. In this case, like, he's the hero. He's 100% right about everything. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a weirdly... It's a, it's a weirdly bleeding heart. Uh, it's, 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 I think also as close as any like Bruckheimer, Joel Silver type blockbuster has ever come to being maybe an anti-war film. Um, yep. Yep. So yeah, I, I find that it's so, so yeah, but it's very similar to Spartan in what it's saying, but it's coming from a very different uh, uh, ideological end of the spectrum. I'm so glad you brought this up. I had the exact same note. Uh, when I was thinking about this movie, particularly in concert with Spartan, and I landed on on this understanding of Denzel's character as this sort of perfect epitomization of liberals sort of as a voting public and how they see themselves, right? Um, and And also what liberals really are sort of politically as well, which is that what we know to be the case is that liberal, conservative, what have you, both parties are indentured to war, right? Like both parties will serve the machine of war. So in that way, Denzel, as a soldier, as a person who gets his own boat at the end of the movie, is not saying I'm anti-military, mm-hmm. I'm done being being in the Navy. He is very much supporting it. He is very much, uh, you know, um, Pound, pounding the drums of it and 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 uh, supporting the business of it, but where liberals differentiate themselves from the functional similarities between conservatives and themselves is that sort of moral higher ground that also comes from uh, this fetishization of intellect, right? Mm. And Denzel embodies this perfectly. He went to Ivy League schools. He is a good family man. And not to mention, he is also the embodiment of the conceit of uh, racial representation mm. in higher learning, in uh, positions of success and power. It's the knowledge economy. It's the meritocracy at work. Mm. Yep. So in that sense, I, I think you're a thousand percent right. I think he is a really good proxy for uh, just a reflection of what liberalism looked like at that time. Mm-hmm. Still feeding the war machine, but very much distincti- distinctive in its sort of cultural mores. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, still the case today. But this is a very 90s version of it. Yeah. And I think what you get in that dinner scene, too, is such a perfect representation of Really, I think up until recently, uh, the dynamics between uh, amongst like men when it comes to like openly being liberal, you you get that like he is hesitant to express his liberal worldview. Uh, partly because and like as soon as he kind of starts doing it, even Gandolfini comes in with like, "What are you a fucking communist?" Um, and you <laughs> right. can tell the other men are like, kind of like, "Oh, this guy is like a little liberal." And you get the sense that Vigo is totally on his side, but he doesn't can't can't back him and that comes into play yes. later when Vigo knowing that he's right is still pressured into betraying him um yes. and I feel like that's a sense of growing up as like a, a liberal person in a relatively liberal family but with a lot of like cops or you know just like you know Mexican-American like culture in general 
you know, we're not voting Republican. Uh, well, at least like my immediate family, but like it was always like a bit of a hesitant. There's always a hesitancy to really embrace like full on liberal uh, ideology or opinions and express them. That all changed when Trump came in. Now, <laughs> now everyone is suddenly like, <laughs> like, like all my family is like, oh, now cops are bad. Uh, but, you know, back then it was always like this hesitancy of like, I agree with you, but I don't really want to say it. The same with like friends. And I think that this movie really gets that sense of like how a certain type of man and men are, are may believe certain, may, may feel certain ways, uh, may, may feel liberal or, or progressivist-ish uh, in, in certain ways, but are hesitant to express that. And you can't find a more perfect setting for that than, than like not only the military, but like the most important part of the military, like the new, a nuclear armed submarine um, yes. that is on the, uh, while we're on the verge of world war three. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I think the movie is so smart about it. Um, you know, I love big action military movies from this period. Uh, they're not always the smartest movies. This one I think is, and it's one of the things I like about it. even other Tony Scott movies like Top Gun uh, is a movie that I, I, I quite like. But I would not say there's a lot of depth to it, you know? That one's pretty blatant Pentagon mm -hmm. propaganda as yes. opposed to this one. That dinner scene is also really funny, too, because Gandolfini accuses uh, Denzel of being uh, a pinko commie because he says that they maybe shouldn't have dropped a bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and killed, you know, what, what was it, 50,000 people. And I also really like the 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 texture here and the the added layer that uh, they're all drinking from teacups, mm -hmm. and and they're they're very sort of feminine teacups. They're like they're like gold, uh, emblazoned sort of like porcelain white teacups on on saucers. You know, it's it's very proper for this group of you know, sort of rugged, rough and tough men talking about uh, the casualties of war and and you know nuclear holocaust. It's uh, it's a very funny sort of uh, sacred and profane kind of crashing into each other. Yeah, the movie does a little of that throughout, like kind of undercutting the masculinity with uh, like the dog, especially like just the fact that, mm -hmm. that everywhere Hackman goes, he's got this little fucking purse dog that yeah. he, that he's so sweet to throughout. <laughs> and it, honestly, it does a lot of work to making you like him like that character as well. It's a very simple way of doing it, but it's very effective. Yes. This movie does a lot to establish Gene Hackman's character as a very capable and talented man. And that even amid his gruff, uh, really kind of intimidating personality, he has a certain amount of charisma and charm. He's not, you know, this monster who you can't find yourself uh, feeling... Um, engaged by and compelled by. And I think to your earlier point, it's one of the reasons the men loving him is so believable um, because he is quite charismatic. Mm -hmm. And I do love that despite the fact that you are inclined to, to side with Denzel for a multitude of reasons, it feels like an even match mm -hmm. the entire time. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is just, again, going towards them as actors, like, just two of the most charismatic actors, leading men of all time. But yeah, they, they, they go a long way to like showing that, you know, Hackman has this sense of humor and, you know, like I said, yeah, he is very competent. He knows what he's doing. He, his blind spot though, is that he never stops to think 
that that maybe the questioning of orders might not be right. Like he's he he acts immediately, and uh, I, that ends up being that. And then as the movie goes on, you know, he's shown that it's shown that like in desperate situations, he is very quick to violence and he is willing to sacrifice his own. Like when he puts the gun against the one soldier's head uh, is really his like moment where he becomes a monster for Mm -hmm. that brief, uh, you know, for a brief second. Um, But yeah, is the thing is like, he's not a, he's not a villain. He, he is the antagonist of the movie, but he's not, he's not a, he's not a villain. Someone on, on Twitter recently became the main character for making the claim that Nurse Ratched yeah. in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is is not actually a villain, that she's just uh, maybe something of like a girl boss, you yeah. know, just doing her her job and, and being an effective administrator. And these men are, uh, you know, unwell and she was just trying to take care of them. I feel like Ramsey might have more of a claim to that antagonist but not villain than, than you know, someone who lobotomizes and otherwise mentally... A healthy man and you know badgers a, a young man and and guilts him into suicide but that's just my particular take on it yeah i can't think of anything that speaks more to like oh no the death of the 60s spirit like the 60s spirit it really is just dead than the idea that nurse ratchet is actually like the hero <laughs> of the movie. so bad yeah. yeah well and it speaks to i think this slide and uh, of uh you know, competency and, and education in the neoliberal sort of hegemony, mm-hmm. you know, like we're talking about in this film uh, portrayed in, in Denzel's character a little bit here, but I, I think not quite as egregious as as making that claim yeah. that uh, actually she's the good guy. So bad. <laughs> ACAB for sure includes Nurse Ratchet. ACAB yeah. does include <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <coughs> I've seen people say that Ramsey is actually right. And I honestly think there's a better case to be made for that than the ratchet one although i don't agree with it i think the movie is very clear like no he is not right but i do think that you know i can see how how somebody with a more conservative uh ideology would at least come to that like at least there's that you could the movie makes the case that you could buy into that um absolutely with the end which is my only issue with this movie is i don't really like dakota at the end uh, oh, let's as, talk about it. Say more. As great as Jason, it is to see Jason Robards, and I, I love mm-hmm. any time I get to see it. Um, his I, his second, or well, his first of two uncredited appearances in Tony Scott films. He's also the assassinated congressman at the beginning of Enemy of the State. Yeah, I I, I think it's too neat. I think it's too pat of an ending. Um, I I think it it, it takes what is you know. I think it boils down the drama that you've just seen to like, you were both right. You were both wrong. Like, yeah. And more than that, I, I think that the idea that, um, Washington's character would be rewarded for his actions rings very untrue. Um, I'm not saying I'd prefer a version where you see him basically kind of punished and booted out of, of service. Uh, but I do think that's the truer ending. Like, I think that anyone in that situation would have done his situation would be ostracized from the military. Um, and again, like, it's such an entertaining movie. I don't necessarily want that downer ending, but I think that the ending it goes with is, is, is a little too, uh, fantastic in like, Mm -hmm. in like, it's, it's too much of a fantasy. Um, and yeah, it's just a little too pat. Uh, it's so quick that it doesn't really detract from the rest of the movie at all. But I do think it is the one tiny misstep that that it, yeah. that, it that it has. Yeah, and and uh, the major character now I can't remember what um, 
what level of service he is. Jason, Jason Robards character. Yeah. yeah. Like an admiral the, the maybe. Admiral. Yeah. He, he does say you've put us in a fucking horrific situation that we have had a mutiny aboard a USS Naval submarine. Um, so yeah, you're like expecting a little bit more retribution or a little bit more of a response from, from the military. I agree with you. It, it is, it definitely flattens it out. I did have one read that I think might be me sort of searching to, to make it a little bit more hefty, but I, I want to get your thoughts on this. You know, the line you're both right and you're both wrong um, is like, Womp, womp. Like, it's not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, well, I do, I do also feel like there is a reading of that that could be understood that there is an acknowledgement that the system itself is broken, right? Like, that these protocols are messy and uh, at the very least, ineffective um and at the very worst completely fatal Mm -hmm. when shit gets real and when things become complicated so again like i i might be reading too much into that but i do appreciate that 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 there's room for that critique Mm -hmm. like if i want to put it there um that it could potentially be saying like yeah this system is not a perfectly designed thing yeah i I don't i don't mind that part of it like I, I do like that, even though I agree with you that the line itself, you know, both right is not is not great. Um, it, it's to me, it's more just the idea that like because of that, we're though we're gonna reward one of you, and it just doesn't. That that's the thing that just doesn't work you, especially because Crimson Tide is loosely based on a real, very scary incident mm-hmm. that occurred uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis aboard a Russian submarine, where right. they received an incorrect order to launch. The captain. Uh, didn't go through with it um, and, uh, you know, eventually got the, realized it was the wrong order. And that guy was not <laughs> rewarded. He was no. very yeah. much uh, ostracized and punished for, yeah. for that. Now, granted, that is, you know, Russian army during the Cold War. I think we can all agree that they were uh, probably a little bit harsher than the Americans towards their own soldiers when it comes to stuff like that. But at the same <laughs> time, I don't think that the response would be that different for uh, an American. Well, especially like you said, when it, when it, when it puts them in such a, like when it, when it would involve such controversy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As evidenced, I think by the fact that uh, the Navy didn't really want much to do with this film mm-hmm. mm. after, uh, after learning that the sort of crux of the, the plot was going to center around a mutiny successfully occurring on a Naval submarine. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, I, I read a very interesting, funny anecdote that uh, without the Navy's involvement, they couldn't get the necessary shot of a submarine going underwater, submerging. So they hung out outside of the, the harbor and, and checked the legality of just simply filming a submarine <laughs> and, and filming like a, a military vessel, um, which I guess there was there was no code against. Oh my gosh. Um, so coincidentally, they found their way to harbor, waited for uh, one of the submarines to be sent out to sea. And it was, in fact, the real USS Alabama. Get out. And so that that shot that you see at the 
early on in the film where they are going underwater and, and the submarine is submerging uh, is, is that mm-hmm. shot from a boat and from a, a helicopter, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had read that too. And, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I can't think that Tony Scott was, had, could have been all that surprised that like the Navy wouldn't want to back this one. It's, yeah. It's a mutiny movie where the mutineer yeah. is the hero. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not you know it's 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 one of the, it's one of those movies that paints a very good portrait of individual soldiers, but it's very critical of the military itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and but it also like a lot of the soldiers aren't really portrayed. Like the 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 officers that back Hackman are kind of all shown to be assholes. Like Gandolfini is clearly a a like. A, a guy who's just keeping his sadism barely in check, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yes. yeah, you know, after Top Gun, I think Scott assumed like, Oh, that was such a big hit. And like the dudes did say it's like that, that's the ultimate Navy recruiting tool. Uh, yeah. they'll, they'll support me again on this. And then, you know, makes a very different, very different movie than Top Gun. I find it funny that that state department officials seem to side with Ramsey. That's mm-hmm. uh, f- famously, uh, this, this, film is is very well liked and regarded by one robert Mueller, mm-hmm. uh, and he really really likes uh the line that ramsey uh says to to hunter when they're sort of in his quarters uh after a, a, a sort of fleeting moment of uh insubordination on the bridge he says we're here to preserve democracy not to practice it mm-hmm. and i guess that this was uh was something uh that that Mueller also seem to believe in terms of the the hierarchy and the chain of command within the FBI mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I mean, credit where it's due, that is a great line. Uh, so good. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. But uh, it, I, I, I just find th- that very funny, you know, that uh, that, of course, military men would probably see this captain, you know, who's who's very sure in his orders and, and you know, quick to point and shoot and just asks where to aim Mm -hmm. and that that would be something that they would find admirable as opposed to the the questioning to the Mm -hmm. to the challenging of that authority uh embodied in denzel's character yeah i think we could also talk about you know this movie really presenting us with some pretty well-tread and at the time very animating uh narratives around the U.S.'s like purpose at the time, the the sort of existence of uh, a U.S. military industrial complex, you know, at the at the end of history, and then uh, sort of after the Gulf War, we hear often about this kind of desire to find a new bad guy, um, and that our government, particularly the Department of Defense and and um, and all of its uh, functional partners trying to sort of spin up this narrative that really came to fruition uh, after after the Second World War about America being the world's police. But taking that concept to a new level, um, wherein we are presented with this idea that there is a constant, ever-present, threat and that nuclear war is looming uh, around every corner unless the U.S. is finger quotes intervening all over the globe. So we lose this idea of 
a singular enemy and instead uh, proliferate (laughs) the threat beyond anything that could really ever be calculable. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear the dialogue that's used when they're talking about Redchenko and then when they get into sort of that beautifully arresting speech that Gene Hackman's character gives in the rain before they're about to deploy. At the beginning of the film, they're talking about Redchenko and they really are um, referring to him in the way that, you know, we talked about guys like Saddam Hussein. Um, they likened him to Hitler. They're, he's he's sort of a, this one big bad guy who represents this idea of a constant threat. There's another line that he says that's basically like, I hope you enjoyed your peacetime, but, you know, now we're here basically to like get back to work. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe he says uh, vacations over. Hope, hope you enjoyed your little vacation. Yes. But now we're now we're back at war. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's really clear now reflecting back on on this language, how prevalent these narratives were at the time and the idea that we are always at war always um and that the job of the american military is to save us from a constant threat of of nuclear holocaust Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that the movie does a good job of ultimately undercutting that by you know the the wrap-up where it's like yeah the nationalist forces fell right away (laughs) like as soon as the army moved in they, they put up no resistance and yeah like i think that was a thing obviously throughout the 90s uh you know before 2001 to where it was a constant like what strong man can we use as the you know the big boogeyman um and none of them ever really took you know and then mm-hmm. obviously after september 11th uh which is yesterday uh you know then then that answered all of all of those people's prayers as, as far as like giving us that that villain but yeah definitely uh you know, all, all, all those people that we tried to make into the new bad guy, Noriega and Saddam and mm, yep. uh, Gaddafi and, and all of them. Uh, very, mm-hmm. very much. The movie's very astute, I think, in, in understanding the psychology, the larger like psychology behind that. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it simultaneously plays into, uh, you know, the, the anxieties of a post-Cold War mm-hmm. society, you know feeling that there's an uneasy and and very tense sort of ceasefire with the Russians, but also telling us that that specter, that sort of looming sense of doom is uh, is largely unfounded, that, that the actual resistance isn't really there. And all that's left is, uh, is, is battle hungry men, aging men, you know, in this, in the service, uh, still looking for something to push the button and pull the trigger at. Mm-hmm. I want to shift and talk a little bit about uh, the racial dynamics of the film. Um, I, I think that you're right, Zach, that I, I would credit uh, Tarantino and, and his work on the script with adding a, a significant amount of those elements, only because they seem relatively uh, invisible in other mm-hmm. Tony Scott features. Uh, we recently talked about Enemy of the State, you know, and, and about, you know, surveillance capitalism and and about uh, the NSA and and policing and realize that in a film in which a, a black man even even a man who is sort of you know part of maybe bourgeois society and a little bit you know of a higher socio-political or, or socio-economic standing uh, is terrorized by by the police state 
Um, and they only make one mention of Islamophobia, you know, the, the mention that, uh, you know, if, if you say the word Allah into a phone, you're going to get monitored. Um, but but absent that, there isn't much uh, addressing any sort of racial dynamics in in Tony's films. Yeah, I, rem- uh, I remember in Enemy of the State, there's a little bit, but it's it's all to do with the like moth- the weird mafia subplot in that. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah, they're the only people who ever sort of like even mention sort of the racial component of of Will Smith as uh, as a lawyer and mm-hmm. and doing sort of like the 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 work and the deeds of of the state or or of you know government against you know quote unquote hardworking mm-hmm. Americans. Um, but but this film absolutely has distinctive qualities to it and 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 you know this this lip is honor stallion mm-hmm. sequence which is uh a a, a brilliantly racially coded mm-hmm. kind of exchange speaking of horses did you ever see those lip and honor stallions what from portugal the lip and honor stallions most highly trained horses in the world they're all white Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're aware they're all white, or yes, sir, you've seen them? Yes, sir, I've seen them. Yes, sir, I'm aware that they're all white. They're not from Portugal, they're from Spain. And at birth, they're not white. They're black. Sir. I didn't know that. But they are from Portugal. But it really starts from the from the outset. I, I think when I look at it, you know, even the the dynamic of of Ramsey looking to his dog, who approves of of Hunter, in their initial exchange, and and that being sort of a, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, but the the relationship between white men of power and black men. And dogs, and and the the sort of pursuit that that they used to use them for, and and the the, the roles in which dogs took, and, and hounds, you know, um, in a a sort of chattel slavery kind of society. Uh, there's something there to me, and then also right before they go below deck and and finally underwater, there is a a moment where Ramsey tells Hunter that I think I think the cigar and the sensation of smoking a cigar is cheaper than drugs or or better than mm-hmm. drugs or something like that. He and, says don't get too addicted because it's more expensive mm-hmm. than drugs. Ah, that's what it is. It's more expensive than drugs or something like that. Um and and the the camera lingers on Denzel as he sort of hears that sentiment and and internalizes it momentarily. Mm-hmm. Um and you can tell there's something there that jades him a little bit. Um but but I think it's all over the place and I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about it and its place within the film. Yeah, I think uh it's a very good uh example of like it's it's one of the few cases where like the subtlety of it actually works um i think there's another spot where like during the big like mexican standoff between all of the competing factions towards the end uh denzel glances at the like other two officers that are on ramsey's side and it linger the camera lingers longer on there's one black officer and he looks away from denzel like they sh- but they share a look of like, yeah, like, oh, you're taking the white guy. Like, he, there, there is a mm-hmm. look that he gives specifically that I feel is like unmistakable in what it, in its intentions. And then, yeah, obviously the, the Lipizzelia sta- Stallion uh, scene is so good. 
there's like a look that Denzel when he says when he says like they're all white. Uh, Denzel like he's like oh he he like closes his eyes and nods and he's like okay I see what you're getting at. Um, but also just the the fact that like it's it, I don't know it's 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 interesting in the fact that it's not like necessarily like an egregiously racist thing to say. It's more just an acknowledgement of kind of like you know the the it, it's really more putting down like white people in in that scene. But it, but it's it's also given the context of it clearly what he's saying is because you know I should have known better than to pick a black XO. Um, Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, and then, you know, they bring it back at the end, too, uh, which is another thing that's like, kind of undercuts it, I think, at the end. But yeah, just that that scene in general. Um, and also just the idea of like the horses, like they bring it up at the beginning where he's, you know, he's such a, he's just give me an old paint. Um, yes. Yep. You know, he's such a like gruff John Wayne type cowboy. Yeah, his comments around the horses felt sort of like vaguely eugenicist to me where like he has that line about you stick a cattle prod up its Mm -hmm. ass and you can get it to deal cards or whatever he says another great line and then he looks at him and he just says it's a matter of voltage Mm -hmm. it's it's simply a matter of voltage Mm -hmm. and so like on the one hand yes he's acknowledging that these all white horses are the ones who are highly trained, highly disciplined and, you know, best suited to be the horse that they are and and do the job that they need to do. But he's also, you know, sort of at the same time, like remarking that they can be like that they, they, they are physiologically capable of receiving that voltage and like having it be, a thing that leads to their discipline rather than than not there's so much complexity in the understated exchanges of racialized perspectives and experiences in this film that it's almost um inarticulable and i think that's one of the things that makes it so real right like it is not this thing where you have a white captain shouting the n word at uh, a black XO. Um, and so too, I think is a, a good deal of like everyday racism is not overt. Um, it's really coded in all of these other conversations or other perceptions or assumptions that are being made. And so I, I feel like the subtleties of the sort of racializing of their dynamic actually builds the tension and, 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 is used to brilliant effect in this movie. I think it would have been flattened had it been more overt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It bears a lot of similarities, as we already said, to uh, a very infamous scene between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper in True Romance. Um, but I also saw some inklings of this later in a an exchange uh, in Django Unchained, where uh, Christoph Waltz and DiCaprio are exchanging some words, and he is mentioning uh, Alexandre Dumas. Mm. You brooding about me getting the best of you, huh? Actually, I was thinking of that poor devil you fed to the dogs today, D'Artagnan. And I was wondering what Dumas would make of all this. You doubt he'd approve, huh? Yes, 
his approval would be a dubious proposition at best. Soft-hearted Frenchie. Alexandre Dumas is black. You know, it's it's not a it's not a particular line. I think that that is explicitly credited to Tarantino, but I think its existence, I think it's proven in in many of his other works that that this has to be at least in part penned by him. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think it's safe to assume that he at least penned that. I we could, I obviously could be wrong, but um, it feels that way. And you know, Tarantino makes himself a pretty easy target for criticism because of how uh, you know the the more overt. Uh, use of racialized language, which I honestly think Tarantino would not get as much uh, gruff for it if he just hadn't cast himself in that scene in Pulp Fiction. Agreed. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I do think that in those conversations around it, a lot of the really more complex stuff that he has to say about race in his films and his scripts uh, does get lost in that. And I think that there is actually, it's not just uh, a case of a guy, you know, finding excuses to write the N-word into his dialogue, I think there is a lot more uh, uh, weight to to what he's explored in in looking at that uh, throughout his movies. Mm-hmm. And Crimson Tide, I think, is a pretty good case. I know that infamously on the set, like Denzel called him out on it, and uh, you know there was a confrontation there with Tarantino saying, like, you know, I'm I'm willing to talk about this with you. I don't want to do it on set in front of people, uh, and that had kind of led to like those two never working together. And then you uh, more recently uh, Denzel said it was, it had all been like, you know, resolved and water under the bridge, partly because Tarantino cast his daughter in, I don't remember if it was, I think it was Django. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so there's, there's always that, but um, yeah. I, so, uh, you know, I think that, that the racial tension in the movie was also like they're on set too and and you know you can probably feel that i mean i assume like with such a close set that there was probably a good amount of like actual you know just the tensions that come from that uh probably made its way into the movie too and you can really feel it and you you make the point in another piece that you wrote um that i found myself thinking about this morning you wrote in the crooked marquee about you know action movies that sort of acknowledge um that life is racially charged um, and that movies don't really do that anymore. And there's sort of like a, a a wash of inclusion and racism erasure. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, and I found myself thinking about that piece that you wrote in con in the context of this movie and really appreciating that this movie is doing the thing that you're talking Mm -hmm. about in that piece, which is like acknowledging that racism exists, particularly in the American military and, you know, it may not be shouting it from the rooftops, but it is giving us, I would argue, a realistic portrayal mm-hmm. of it. And that is more compelling than just the fact that Denzel is a black man and he happens to be an XO, right? Yeah, I feel like if Crimson Tide was made today, there would be, by somebody else, uh, it, there would be a lot of um, just reciting of uh, political points that you find uh on twitter or taken from like you know books like you know white fragility or how to answer it like that would be because the thing is like in that piece that i wrote uh it's not that i think that 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 movies don't acknowledge racism uh or racial dynamics they do i think more than they ever have before it's just that they do it in such an academic way and in such a like 
pedantic way, uh, where they look at the larger societal uh, issues around it. Like they, they, they look at racism, but what's gone from movies is a naturalistic and maybe stylized, but still more realistic uh, depiction of actual personal, interpersonal racial dynamics mm. and the acknowledgement of that between characters. Um, so you'll get something like, I don't know, the new Candyman. Just, I, I would say, like, compare the original Candyman to the new Candyman. Whereas the original one is dealing with political issues, but I don't think it's a political movie. You know, uh, whereas the new one, it's just like, yeah, I, I read that tweet that somebody shared on their Instagram stories about gentrification and right. love seeing, love hearing it come out unnaturalistically from actors who cannot sell it as opposed to, you know, something like this, where it's like, you get such a sense of characters and their racial dynamics, you know, and it never feels like the movie's talking at you, you know, yeah. um, which brings up a point that I wanted to bring uh, in, in, I think it was, I don't remember if it was the teaser that you guys released for the fan or if it was, no, I think it was the Days of Thunder episode where the charge has always been leveled against Tony Scott is that he's style over substance. Uh, and I don't agree with that. I think the Crimson Tide is a number one case of countering that. But certainly some of his movies, you could make that, that case. However, I do agree with you that his style is so... The aesthetics of his movie are so complex and they're so beautiful and they're so important that they are substantive on their own as an aesthetic yes. experience. But beyond yep. that, I think that at this point, I think that movies today are all substance and very little style. Yeah. Uh, and I will take the former over the latter because film is still a visual medium. And, you know, I would rather see a movie that is, that has style uh, and not empty style, but like actual, you know, intent behind it and emotive power. than I would, you know, something that's just going to repeat whatever, you know, classroom learning lesson about whatever politics because that substance it's just because there is substance to it doesn't make the substance like actually substantive you know it's it's yes. at some point it's just like if i want it's not that i'm saying like oh they shouldn't in, include that but it's like i they, we have lectures for a reason we have you know books that, that talk about things for a reason film is supposed to do something different um and yeah, I, I think at this point uh, it, it's very much reversed, and I think it makes it makes even some of those more style over substance Tony Scott movies feel more substantive. Like you watch Top Gun today, and you're like, "This is yes, I know all the problems with this movie. Yes, it is a big piece of military propaganda. Yes, it it it's just kind of an empty. It, it it's it's not really. It's weird in what it's trying to say. You know, it kind of wants to have it both ways, where it's like. Tom Cruise is this like loner individual rebel, but he's also like a good soldier. It's very mixed up on that. But it's also such a specific character piece that you don't mm -hmm. get in movies like that anymore. You know, that like if they was released today, it kind of be considered more of an art film than mm -hmm. an actual bombastic like blockbuster. It's it's very much like let's let's look at this character and him kind of making peace with like his demons and stuff as we're doing these big aerial shots. You just never get that now. Um, I've heard good things from behind the scenes about Maverick. Um, I, I, I know somebody who is like done some, some work on that movie and 
uh, they were saying like it has it's actually like pretty good. So I'm I'm optimistic towards that, uh, and maybe that'll do the same thing. But I feel like today, if that movie were made, if Top Gun were made, there'd be much more emphasis on some kind of dramatic, like some kind of larger conflict. Whereas that only really comes in at the end of the original one. It's much more of a character piece. Right. What's interesting about that that you're bringing up, you know, for for all the like, uh, you know pedantry of of modern cinema it also feels kind of thematically inert like i feel like in this movie it's actually saying something mm-hmm. it has a particular worldview it imbues its characters with worldviews rather than trying to have people just espouse you know erudite kind of teachings and and ideas um and i i like movies that are about something you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. and, and and are trying to say something and, and i think that tony uh, you know, for, as we said, you know, sometimes being someone whose aesthetics take center stage as opposed to his characterization or even his performances or dialogue tends to have a worldview in mm-hmm. most of his movies, tends to have something that he's trying to convey thematically. Not to mention that the aesthetics oftentimes and, and by his own admission are informed by his understanding of character. Domino looks the way it does because, uh, you know, the real Domino Harvey and all of the bounty hunters that Tony Scott spent time researching and studying to, to make that film were all on amphetamines. Mm-hmm. So he made a movie that felt like it was on amphetamines. Uh, you know, like, like these are our conscious decisions and not just, you know, things that are rendered with, with a style just for the sake of they, they are all informed by a message and by a creator kind of like central tone and feeling that he's trying to convey. In my ongoing dissertation about Tony Scott as a seminal pop artist, I uh, I will come back to this idea of his style being intensely substantive. You know, people used to uh, say that Warhol's work was gauche and sort of barbaric, right? And, and really empty, but therein lied the point of his work. Um, you know, he was really adept at using the imagery and mechanisms of a commercialized postmodern world to reflect something back to us that commented on it. Um, And I think Tony Scott does the exact same thing in this movie in particular, outside of the outside of the explicit political commentary, the fact that he's using the iconography, the language, the signifiers of American nationalism and American military to not only confront us with those things, but also comment on them um, is an intensely substantive uh, pursuit on his part. And I think even in some of his other movies, um, the, the my understanding of him as a pop artist inherently means that in my book, he is always doing something substantive because he is using the detritus of Americana to reflect it back to us and have us ponder ideas about power, celebrity, consumerism, what have you. Um, and that's a, a, a well worth exercise. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think that if you take a broader look at his work, he is dealing with a lot of uh, very specific issues that get, he's do, like, like the pop artness of it and the fact that he's working in, you know, the medium of the blockbuster and is very responsible for the style of like MTV. Like he kind of is one of the pioneers of that MTV style kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, 
you know, it it it, it tends to uh, you overshadow the 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 issues that he is looking at. Um, but I actually think that you know, I agree. With that. I think it's a good thing um, because you're there first and foremost for an emotional experience and an entertaining one, and the fact that he can throw these things in there. And you know, his movies can get a little pedantic at times. It's not like they're they're short of that enemy of the state. Certainly does, uh, but. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always going to be, you know, how, how does this thing make you feel first? Um, and I think that in the tradition of pop art, like you were saying, that that is the that's the point of it. Um, and you know, that's that the to dismiss that I think is to bring a understand a, a, an incorrect uh, understanding of of the purpose of cinema and pop art. Um, in general. Yes. Uh, yeah. I really wish he, obviously I wish he uh, were still with us, but uh, I don't know that this would have been the case, but I always felt like one of my favorite Ridley Scott movies is The Counselor, and I always felt like the one thing about that movie is like, this really should have been directed by Tony Scott. I, I think he could have, I think it, it, under Tony Scott, I think that that movie would work even more, and I like it a lot mm-hmm. as it is, but uh, it really, it's it's got the sleaziness of some of his other stuff and but and and as good a filmmaker as Ridley Scott is that one is a little flat for as much visually for as much as he's trying to do stuff whereas it seems like the perfect vehicle for Tony Scott mm. yeah I love that that would have been quite a pairing Cormac McCarthy, <laughs> McCarthy with, Tony, with Scott. Tony Scott god yeah. I can't even imagine like two two of the greatest sort of like uh yeah I don't know uh, arbiters of of American Mm-hmm. life yeah. and yes. like the, sen- the sensation of being in like a postmodern America together that would have been something mm-hmm. to see I mean that's the thing with Tony Scott though is that he actually I think even more than Ridley Scott uh, has kind of worked with screenwriters who are in and of themselves as writers a little bit maybe more of the auteur of the piece like not quite because he is his visual style is so specific but like you know, True Romance feels as much like a Tarantino movie as it does a Tony Scott mm-hmm. movie. Last Boy Scout feels as much like a Shane Black movie as it does a Tony Scott mm-hmm. movie. And The Counselor is one of the few that also feels as much a Cormac McCarthy movie as it does a Ridley Scott movie. Most other Ridley Scott movies, you're not really getting too much of the sense of the the screenwriter as author of the of the, the piece. And uh, I think Tony Scott has, has always shown a little bit more uh, of a desire to 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 do that with the screenwriters that he's worked with. And yeah, I think the counselor would have been right in line with that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I also, you know, I have made the claim on this show uh, and, and during Scott Timber already that for being such like a, a, you know, visual stylist, Tony also kind of seems like an actor's director. Mm-hmm. You know, Denzel is considered one of the greatest actors of our generation and worked with him four times, Hackman twice, you know, um, Early in Tom Cruise's career, there he was. He was also with Duvall in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, Gandolfini. You know, Gandolfini, Will Smith at the height mm-hmm. of his of his uh, popularity as well. And, uh, you know, young and upcoming sort of Chris Pine also working with him and, and saw something special here. And they, and they all tend to put in really good performances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I don't think Pine's been as good in anything uh, as he is in Unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that, the, you know, when you think of Denzel, the fact that like the two directors he's, uh, you know, known for working with the most is Spike Lee and Tony Scott, who are very, mm-hmm. actually, they're not that different. 
stylistically. Really, like mm. a lot of Spike Lee movies kind of look <laughs> yeah. like Tony. He uses a lot yeah. of the same type of like filters and canted angles and stuff. But in terms of uh, thematics, obviously they seem very. They're, they're, although we've spent a lot of time talking about how some of Tony Scott movies actually do look at like racial dynamics, uh, they're, they're still coming from a very different place than Spike Lee movies. But the fact that those are the two directors that Denzel you know, arguably are, are the great leading man of his generation. You know, that those are the two that he's worked with the most uh, and that he's most in honest with. You know, I, I think that there's a, that speaks a lot to how good of an a, a actor's director Tony Scott is. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, like that he can pull all these people and he's not pulling them just because his movies made a lot of money because they didn't always make a lot of money. And there were certainly safer bets than some of these that these A-listers could have taken. Uh, but the fact that they're, you know, coming around, they, they, they know that they're going to be given like good work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is very, a... Oh, I'm sorry. Go I was ahead. just going to say that for as much as, you know, Oh, Tony Scott, we think like explosions and skylines and submarines and planes, like his movies don't have that. Like they, they don't have, they, they never feel, they, they always are driven by character. They're not Marvel movies. They're, they're not even like stuff like, they're not Michael Bay movies either, where the star is going to be some big special effect. They're, they're really not. They're, the stars of the movies are the stars. And they're backdropped by all this like visual flourishes and bombast. But like it's always focused on the human beings at the center of them. Yes, I'm so glad you brought it back here. Because when we were talking about the ways in which this movie is like a play... I uh, was thinking about an interview I was watching this morning with Denzel when he was he was talking about that very thing. And he had said that both he and Hackman were so excited to work on this film because of how like theater it was. Not necessarily, as you said, because, you know, it felt stagey, but because they got to do this really strong character work and and work in and around and against each other in ways that you often can't do in a movie when, you know, you're uh, cutting every two minutes and and restaging and, and all of those things. And so um, hearing that from Denzel and, and knowing that both he and Hackman, who, as we've said many times on this episode, are uh, two of the greatest actors of all time, I think um, that they both were so excited to work on this film and and do so because they knew it gave them a lot to do Mm -hmm. and that they could learn from each other, which is another thing Denzel mentions, Um, that there were scenes that he got to just watch Hackman and just like absorb him. Uh, Go speaks to this point that you're making Zach about it really being a character study and, and giving actors a lot of room to, to play. Mm -hmm. I think it's very telling that for a guy who, uh, you know, is synonymous with blockbuster cinema, that as unless I'm forgetting something, which I might be, I don't think Ridley or Tony Scott ever made a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie. Deja Vu is about as close as he gets to sci-fi. Yeah, Deja, you know? okay, Deja Vu is like very, yeah, that's true. But it's also a like interesting, like police procedure. Like he never made a sci-fi. Absolutely. He never made a sci-fi spectacle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Like he never made anything set on an alien planet, alien invasion, spaceships, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, unlike pretty much every other, I think, blockbuster director of that generation who would, uh, his, his movies were always, even if there's some tech stuff going on in them, the, like I said, the star or, or, or are very heavy on like mechanics, train, plane, uh, you know, cars, 
at the center, it's always going to be the human mm. being at it. And, you know, he never, he never really went off into fantasy or sci-fi to build war, like big worlds and stuff that even his brother has done a lot. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, he's never made like a, a monster movie, uh, like unstoppable is the closest to a monster movie. Uh, but yeah, you know, he's not, he, he's, he's, he, he is very much a weirdly humanist director. Uh, and I don't think he gets the credit for that, that he deserves. Uh, the Hunger, I guess, is kind of a monster movie, but it's a vampire movie, so it's like a very <laughs> specific kind of, you know. Yeah. I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, you know, and, and we've we've already said a couple of times that we don't feel like this kind of movie would get made today. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it, you know, is is the uh, the racial component, which we've mentioned. I think part of it is that, uh, you know, the, the military-industrial complex is so entrenched in Hollywood now in a way that it, it, it was not quite so in, in, you know, this era, um, of course, always sort of pretty prevalent, but I think that their, their partnership with something like the Marvel cinematic mm-hmm. universe just speaks to that hegemony and, and, and that kind of consistency of ideology where a, a movie that challenges it like this would not be this big budget would not probably get the studio approval would not have, much of an outlet or an audience. And I think the other part of it, as you said, Zach, is that, uh, yeah, that we just don't get like that, these deeply human character driven blockbusters that still, you know, pay off on the spectacle as well as on, on the character side. Yeah. I honestly, I think that if, if he were around, I would be really interested to hear his thoughts on like the superhero genre and Marvel. Cause I have a feeling he yes. would be very much on this like side of, like a Martin Scorsese when it comes mm-hmm. to that, because for as much as he was uh, like one of the guys that epitomized the big bombastic blockbuster cinema of his day. And up until, you know, recently um, it feels, they feel so different from what we get today. We feel so different from franchise stuff. And I think the only franchise movie he did was what Beverly Hills cop two, which is kind of before yeah. the idea yeah. of like a franchise. It was just a sequel. Um, right right you know and it just it feels like what what bought modern blockbuster cinema which is pretty much all the majority of american cinema now is today weirdly feels so anathema to what he was doing and i think you see yes. that too in his later career because except for unstoppable and i guess taking a pill home one two three maybe um the, the movies before that were much kind of harder edged uh smaller scale stuff as big as they still were as big as something like man on fire is, you know, on a relative level, or Deja Vu, uh, or Domino, like, they're still, they still are, like, smaller than, you know, Top Gun, or Enemy mm-hmm. of the State. Um, they're, they're, and they're, they're much, they were much harder edge too. Like, he starts going far darker and meaner in that later period. And then, you know, he finishes with uh, Unstoppable, which is as crowd-pleasing a movie I think is we have gotten <laughs> yeah. in the last you know fifteen years. Uh, honestly, I think might be my second favorite after um, Crimson Tide. Uh, it's just such it's got that same kind of propulsion, obviously, uh, and mm-hmm. it's very similar yes. in, in, to that in a way of like it's not quite real time, but it, there's a lot of real time action going on. Obviously, this it's another thing where it's like not quite nuclear, kind of a nuclear, but it's like another kind of nuclear bomb type movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stuff. It's 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 got some interesting, you know, kind of more broad and more generalized, like just kind of anti-corporate politics to it. But they're still very yes. prevalent there. Um, 
some interesting underspoken racial dynamics in that one, a little bit less obvious in it, but, uh, yeah, but, but prior to that, uh, I do think his, his worldview starts getting a much darker and mm-hmm. he starts scaling those movies down, even as the style kind of goes more and more over the top. Unstoppable too also is one like, uh, Crimson Tide that has that bombast and has that like and everybody clapped mm-hmm. moment at the end where the score <laughs> swells and, yeah and it's 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 very fantastical it's very mm-hmm. cinematic right everyone throwing their fists in the air and cheering yeah. for the the resolution of the of the plot um and it's it, it is it's rousing it's super crowd pleasing mm-hmm. but it's earned right which is so different than i think what you're saying too about these these franchise movies now where it's like we're supposed to have these moments of you know, the girl boss moment mm-hmm. on the battlefield where we're like, oh yeah, this is so good. And like, none of that stuff is earned, no. right? Yeah. And the moments that Tony Scott gives us these really, um, these really heightened moments of, of uh, celebration or just relief and release feel totally earned mm-hmm. because he is, such a master manipulator of emotion and emotional tension that like by the time you get to you know the end of crimson tide and they're they're evading a certain death like you are clapping and smiling Mm -hmm. and uh screaming along with them yeah i i am a sucker for a movie that ends with like a big earned uh clapping thing it's again like i said (laughs) like the only the only movie that I find more rewatchable in Crimson Tide is Digstown, and that ends on a big bombastic <laughs> clapping moment too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just to, not to like yeah, compare everything to Marvel, but you know, the stuff that it does earn, and that like they did something like Avengers Endgame ha- will have. Like, I'm not made of stone. Like, I I smiled when Captain America lifts the hammer. Uh, that oh, feels yeah. but the thing is, even there, like it's earned over the course of like eight movies. Eight so it's movies. basically I'm watching a TV show, which is fine. <laughs> But it's not the same thing. The fact that Tony Scott can do do a similar thing better in 90 minutes than it takes this thing 15 damn movies in you know, seven <laughs> years to do. I mean, that's saying quite a lot. Uh, yes, as absolutely. To, you know, his 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 level of competence that is missing from this, the, the franchise heavy IP stuff we get today. Completely. Yeah, completely. So, Zach, uh, we've been asking this of our guests. If Crimson Tide is one and Unstoppable is two, what are numbers three, four, and five for you in his entire uh, filmography? Um, I, I would probably put The Last Boy Scout number three. Um, I'm a big fan of Shane Black, uh, Shane Black's writing. And to me, drunken, hungover, bitter bruce willis is the ideal bruce willis uh yes honestly is <laughs> great my third my third favorite like well not blockbuster takes town isn't a blockbuster but my third probably most rewatchable movie is die hard with a vengeance uh mm-hmm. and yeah willis is doing a similar thing in that like it's it's the best willis um uh <laughs> and that that movie's just so, just so fun uh uh number four you know i i need to rewatch the hunger it's been a while um I know that hunger is really good, uh, but it's just, it's been too long since I've seen it. Um, True Romance was a movie that I loved a lot as a kid. Upon a most recent rewatch, I feel like some of it doesn't hold up quite as well. The stuff that works mm-hmm. in it is great. Um, 
But I do think, and I think it's honestly more Tarantino's script mm. stuff that doesn't work than anything that, that Scott is doing. I think Scott's doing really yeah. good work on it. Um, so I previously I would have maybe even put that number one, but it's moved down in my estimation a bit. Um, so number four would probably be I I really like Deja Vu. I think Deja Vu is a blast. Yeah. Um. So Deja Vu, and then five maybe. Uh, what am I? What am I missing here? Um, I mean, Man on Fire is really good. Uh. Mm-hmm. It's not one that I necessarily really want to rewatch all the time because it's very heavy in its tone, uh, very yep. dark. But it's man, when it works, it works. Yeah, it's also his longest movie. Yeah, it's like two hours and twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit uh, a little bloated. Yeah, it, it and you feel that in it. But Denzel is so menacing in it. Like when he turns into the Punisher in that movie, it's man, <laughs> it's, it's so just firing great. on all cylinders. Like, yeah. Uh, uh. But yeah, Crimson Tide. I, I, I'm not Crimson Tide. I'm sorry. Uh, Deja Vu was a movie I hadn't, I had never seen until I think last year, um, mm. and I was like, I love a good small scale. I mean, it's not a small scale movie, but a small scale like sci-fi time travel type idea, like that when done well. Like, uh, uh, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Frequency, with yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it's very similar to that in a lot of ways. I love that movie. When you when you can just do like a cool like mystery procedural type thing with this like you know high concept premise in the middle of it, uh, when it works, it works like gangbusters. And I think Deja Vu is a case of that. I knew Zach would not disappoint us. No, not a, we've had a couple people who have said, you know, <laughs> admittedly, I've only seen like two or three Tony Scott movies, but we knew that you'd have the right answer. Mm-hmm. And if you'll humor us, because this is the the thrilling conclusion to Scott mm-hmm. Temper. Carly, I have to ask you too, after going through uh, his 90s filmography and, and all the others that we've watched, what is, what's your top five, Tony Scott? Crimson Tide, tippity, tippity, tippity top, probably miles above number two, which is saying something. And it's not because number two isn't good. It's because Crimson Tide is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually would say, I think, I think the fan is number two for me. Okay. Um. I'd never seen that movie and I just fucking love it. Um, And I love when Tony is sort of swimming around in like a pure saccharine, insanely consumerist Americana setting like NASCAR or baseball. Like he just, it's like him and his element. Um, And I think Wesley Snipes is, is fantastic in that film. I would say the fan at number two, yeah, I need to rewatch that. I I watched that a couple times as a kid when it was on cable, and I really liked mm-hmm. it back in the day. And as always, I, I know that other I know it has a reputation of being like terrible, but I remember always really liking it. But I haven't seen it in oh well over a decade, and I really it's, I'm really interested in revisiting it. Yeah, it it's was, so much better than I expected it to be because that movie. reputation had preceded it for me as well. I was like, oh, I feel like I've heard that this movie was isn't great, um, but. It's it's just a really good San Francisco movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tony is also uh, so great at, um, you know, just these landscape and sort of aerial shots. Um, and he does a great job with San Francisco because there's so much to take in. And he he's he's very adept at at giving us um, a frame that doesn't feel overstuffed. Um, I would say the fan at number two, I'd probably put man on fire at number three i think i would put 
The Last Boy Scout at number four. I also am just obsessed with Damon Wayans. Mm. Like, he's <laughs> so, so good in that movie. And I don't know what I would put at number five. I think it's probably... True Romance? I was going to say either a toss-up between True Romance or... I also really loved Unstoppable. Um, I watched it for the first time last year, uh, right after we had watched Deja Vu, actually. And I was like, these movies, mm. like, had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea yeah. these movies were so good. Yeah. So I I would probably put, I, maybe I'd put True Romance at number five. Okay. Gotcha. What about you, sir? Okay, it's my turn. Uh, well, I think number one remains after this this most recent rewatch, Crimson Tide. It's just um, like the best movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's just, like I said, it's it's the ideal Tony Scott film just in its execution and its platform and it's in its themes and aesthetics. It's it's yeah, it's uh it's a masterpiece. So so Crimson Tide number one, I think I would also echo you and say that the fan has become my number two. Um I, I, I thought that that was a really special movie and, and much better than I anticipated it being. I think three is probably deja vu. Mm. I really, really like Deja Vu. I think it's interesting. And as you said, Zach, it's, you know, it's a, a procedural, it's a sci-fi thriller. It It's also expanding upon Tony's ideas about uh, surveillance mm-hmm. and voyeurism and all those things in a really interesting kind of way thematically that he has explored in other films. It's also weirdly um, prescient in it's like, oh, white nationalist terrorist. Uh, yeah, that's stuff. true. <laughs> Absolutely. Played by a guy who would go on to be uh, very much uh, ideologically sympathetic to that uh, cause. Yeah, that's when, true. When Jim Caviezel was speaking <laughs> at like a recent thing, defending like the, I think he was defending like the insurgency. I think he was a day. He was very much talking like he's very yeah, much. He was, it's like wow, Tony Scott was very casted that very very well. <laughs> he knew. Yeah, and well, he's good at he's it. Like, like so, he's really good at it. I'm taking away from. He's like, very good. Yeah. I mean, the guy who played Jesus in a Mel Gibson movie is is gonna be have some white nationalist sympathies, yeah. probably, right? Uh, now, I, but um, I will say, man, it's really a tragedy that we never got Mel Gibson in a Tony Scott movie. I would agree. Oh, with that would have been, been so been good. good. Yeah, right. Like I'm thinking of him in a Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. and just like how charismatic and and uh and poppy he is in that movie and i could see him really being phenomenal under tony's yeah hand. Mm-hmm. terrible man great i love mel Gibson so yeah much. i we, mean uh, it's it's hard not to it's hard not to like him i mean even you know like i mean dragged across concrete mm-hmm. i think he's fantastic in that and that i mean yeah, ideologically me like a pretty conservative movie vince vaughn and mel gibson mm-hmm. not exactly like bastions of you know like kind of progressivism uh but but they both put in such good work yeah. and that that movie is great uh, and and really fucking mean mm-hmm. too oh yeah oh yeah, man yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the you know the recurring question of like can you separate the art from the artist and i think in a lot of cases for someone like a mel gibson uh or a vince vaughn uh or even a mammoth um you know i have no problem separating the art from the artist yeah um me either um but I just think like Mel Gibson is such one of those like just leading men movie stars that Scott worked with so well that it honestly surprises me that they never they never worked together. Yeah, yeah. really wish a good they point. Would, would have. Um, number four is going to be tough for me. I would say it's been it's been a long time since I've seen it. So number four right now I'm going to give a tie, but it may change after a rewatch between The Last Boy Scout and Domino. Mm. 
I think Domino's great. I think it's so over the top. I think it is, uh, you know, in terms of late period, Scott, like his most uh, transgressive. I, I think it's also, you know, abstracted and bordering almost on like an art film, as you mentioned, Zach. Like there are, you know, for, for its pop art sensibilities and it's like manicness and, and this sort of drug induced kind of quality to it. It feels in parts like almost kind of like a brockage film, mm-hmm. like the smears of like color that are popping out at you. And and it, it's visually just uh, really sumptuous and, and exciting and, and odd. I saw that in the theater, but I haven't seen it since. And oh, wow. yeah, I yeah. remember being half on board with it. Like I liked a lot mm-hmm. of it, but I also think I, I think I'm by my initial reaction was like, this is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in a theater setting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then I think number five goes to uh, Unstoppable, his final film. I, I had a blast with that. I, I knew I was going to like it because I remember people, uh, you know, speaking very highly of it um, and, and just loving Tony Scott. And then I started watching it and uh, it was it was more than I thought it was going to be. It, it is that tense, like edge of your seat kind of action thriller race against time. But it does have that sort of like anti-bureaucratic message it's got the racial politics it's got like the working class kind of sentiments mm-hmm. in there it is a good good movie mm-hmm. and a, a a really great i think sort of capstone to tony's career zach is there anything else about tony scott or crimson tide that you want to make sure you mention before we wrap up um I mean, I think we've said everything about Crimson Tide that you can. Like, I can't what, recommend what, it more if people it, haven't seen it. It doesn't need our endorsement. Yeah. You know, it's a... uh, I don't necessarily think it's an under the radar movie, um, but it's one that probably in today's age, like maybe younger audiences aren't quite as aware of just because the change in media landscape like that. That's it is it is one of those like cable movies, like daytime cable TV movies that, that used to yep. always be on like TNT and yes uh i, I think I, that's where i first came across it seeing it bits and pieces mm-hmm. before sitting down and watching all of it um very much like a dad movie too uh so you know if like younger viewers maybe aren't quite as familiar with it um i would highly recommend that they go see it and yeah just some if or if people i i think for a while i had stayed away from some tony scott movies because i kind of just thought of them as you know uh very you know corporate studio like 90s it has to be like a big you know, thing, empty headed Michael Bay type blockbusters. And uh, I think that that has changed a lot since the understanding of that has changed a lot since his passing. Um, I think he is now, you see more and more people rightly regarding him as a legitimate, like a tour and as a really interesting uh, visual and thematic artist. And even, I think more and more people are, you know, kind of saying like, I prefer his movies to his brothers. Uh, which I mean, I certainly do. I, I like a lot of Ridley Scott movies, but I I will go for Tony Scott movies uh, more. Um, so, but anyone who maybe uh, has stayed away from them because of that understanding, like like or that or that or that takeaway that you know they are just kind of brainless blockbusters of the Michael Bay variety, I very much encourage to uh, you know to 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 put aside that uh, belief and actually watch the movies because they're very different. One hundred percent agree. Amen, indeed. I, uh, yeah, I think in fact the the very first time I watched Crimson Tide was sitting on a hotel bed next to my brother, with my father on the opposite bed, saying, "We got to watch this movie mm-hmm. on on cable," and uh, we did late into the night, and uh, it's it's become a favorite ever since. It's always dads. It's a great dad movie. Bringing bringing the kids into Crimson <laughs> Tide. Yeah, um, 
Well, I think that that uh, wraps up this episode and concludes Scott Tember. Uh, could not think of a better person to have alongside uh, than Zach Vasquez. Zach, thank you so, so much for uh, for coming back and hanging out with us today. No, thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this movie uh, that I love so much. Absolutely. Uh, Zach, where can people find you and your work? Um, they can find me on Twitter uh, at Zach, Z-A-C-H underscore Vasquez. Uh, and they can read me in Crooked Marquee. Um, I have one or two pieces every month there. Uh, crime Reads, I write for pretty regularly. Um, I'm actually going to have my first uh, article in Fangoria coming up. Um, yeah, which is great. And uh, every once in a while, The Guardian. Uh, we'll see if I'm reviewing Saturday Night Live again this year. Uh, I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, I may be. You must. Uh, so, the voice of the people. Uh, so possibly look for my reviews of Saturday Night Live at The Guardian. But I'm not, not sure if, if that'll be the case for the coming season or not. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Zach, so much. Um, as always, you can uh, follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. And we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>